Everybody's grabbing their seats, finding their seats or whatever. Um, I want to remind you that we're going to have the um, uh, annual church picnic in a couple of weeks on April the 7th. So we need to uh, think in terms of who's going to be uh, bringing the grills and who's going to be organizing that. So we need to get some sign-up sheets out there and that kind of a thing. And uh, who's got the trucks because some of the people who have trucks have gone in some other directions. They've gone to be with the Lord mostly or they've moved out of state um, or moved away. So also a reminder on April the 15th, there is going to be the annual uh, March of Remembrance for the Holocaust. And just to reiterate what this is about, it's an opportunity to uh, visually demonstrate our support for the Jewish community and against anti-Semitism. And this has been going on for uh, since about 2007 here at Houston. It's been they have these all over the world, and they'll have some speakers at the beginning. We don't know where that's going to be yet, or where it will start, but also it will end at Temple Emanuel. So it's going to be in the Rice University area, and it begins about 12:45 on Sunday and lasts until 3 p.m. And it's interesting. I listened to one of the professors at Dallas Seminary who was who is close, close friends with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, taught, a, um, taught at Camp uh, Shoshona, which is uh, uh, the camp that, that Aerial Ministries has a few years ago on uh, theology of the Holocaust. And in his introduction, he said that there have been hardly anything written from a conservative evangelical perspective to explain or to answer the questions related to the evil of the Holocaust, which was a, a real tragedy. There's been a couple of things written since then. Erwin Lutzer wrote a good book on this. Uh, he, was, he was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. So evangelicals have been strangely silent concerning their philo-Semitism, uh, their love for Israel and the Jewish people to have uh, been so strangely silent. So it's an opportunity for us to just help build those bridges, open communication with the Jewish community here in Houston. Also, the uh, Museum of the Bible trip is closed, but we're going to be sending information out uh, in the next two or three weeks, so be watching your email for that. Same thing for the Israel trip. We'll we'll be finalizing things uh, for that. So that takes care of the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We pray for several in the congregation who are facing some uh, various illnesses, challenges, uh, health-wise, some who are no longer able uh, to be here with us because of uh, health problems, and we pray for them and their recovery. We pray for uh, Terry Sudarth and, and the various illnesses affecting her and why she's in the hospital after moving to Florida. We just pray for her and her family. And Father, we also pray for Jim Dumas and that the doctors in Ukraine can properly uh, come to understand what his problem is and give him proper treatment that he can uh, continue to live a somewhat normal life uh, with these kidney problems. Now, Father, we pray for uh, Jim Myers as he travels back to Kiev and that you'll keep him safe. We pray for us that we might be faithful witnesses to your grace, to your love, to the gospel, articulating it clearly to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're continuing our study as we work our way uh, through this particular chapter. Now, as we look at this chapter, we're seeing, and really this section, God is expanding David's kingdom. 
And if we learn anything from this chapter is that it is God who gives the increase. It is God's grace that uh, blesses and it's God's grace that brings judgment, but it's not because of what we do or what we don't do in certain cases, in a lot of cases. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you can be doing everything right and not seeing the kind of results that you think should be there. And that's because God hasn't promoted you for whatever reason in God's plan. That doesn't mean that you're under divine discipline or divine judgment or that or anything like that, which is what a lot of people think. They immediately think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. And that's not necessarily the case. We also know that even unbelievers or rebellious believers are going through life and they are doing a lot that is wrong and it doesn't seem like God provides justice for them. And we have to remember God has a plan and he's working out that plan and eventually, as we've been studying in our First Peter series on Thursday night, the judge of all the earth will do right. And what we see here is that God is elevating David. Now, remember, David went through about 10 or 12 years where Saul was trying to kill him. He was being persecuted and hounded out of Judea by Saul. He's being chased around through the desert. And those of you who've been with me down in the Negev know just how barren and dry and inhospitable that is. And yet David had accumulated during this time a thousand people that he is responsible for. And, and maybe even a, a, f- a few more than that. So this was a difficult time, and God was training David, though. It wasn't because David had done something wrong, but God was training David and preparing him for his future role as the king of Israel. And he has a special role for David. Because of that, uh, we have to recognize there are certain things that are true for David that are not necessarily applicable to every one of us. But then there are general principles, many general principles in David's life that are that we can draw uh, certain conclusions from. And one of those is God is the one who promotes us. And we're not promoted unless God promotes us. And we'll see the scripture on that as we go into this. So this is a section dealing with God's blessing. It goes actually from Second Samuel chapter 2 through chapter 10. It is a summary of how God blesses David and expands the kingdom under his leadership. But then David is going to fail. And even in that period where God is blessing David and doing stuff for David, David is it is not pictured as being just lily white and perfect. That's one of the distinctive things about the Bible in contrast to other religious books that talk about people. Human books that talk about their religious leaders always paint people in these perfect tones, and yet the Bible always presents everyone warts and all where their sins are exposed. I'm sure glad I'm not a biblical character. I would not want to be known throughout history by some name like Rahab the harlot. I mean, poor poor girl, I mean, that for the rest of her life she walks with the Lord, and yet she'll always be known as Rahab the hoe. So we have to uh, recognize that, that God is picturing us as, as sinners. So the kingdom expands from chapter 2 through 10, then David sins and God will discipline him in chapters 11 through 20. And then the last part, 21, 22, 23, and 24, cover six different uh, episodes in David's life that relate to the Davidic covenant. If you want to think about a key organizing idea in this book, it's the Davidic covenant. It comes in chapter 7. Everything we're studying now, we see God is expanding the kingdom. He is developing and building the house of David, which means his dynasty. He is blessing David. He's having many children. He is conquering all of the enemies of Israel, and he is he is developing that kingdom and expanding the territorial boundaries to uh, to the degree pushing out towards those boundaries God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is God doing it, and what David is doing is focusing on his personal responsibilities and doing that right, living his life correctly before God 
and God is the one who is uh, giving the increase. So this first section is he, you see God already building David's house before you get to the Davidic covenant when he is going to promise David an eternal throne, an eternal house or dynasty, an eternal seed. So this is, lays the groundwork. In the section we're in right now, from 2.1 to 4.12, we saw the beginning of David's kingdom and all these, the nasty infighting. The civil war that was going on between the tribes, the ten northern tribes, are just in a state of anarchy and collapse because they've been overrun by the Philistines. So they're definitely under what um, what the Leviticus 26 describes as, as the fourth cycle of discipline. And yet God, even while that's going on, God is raising up a new leader in David who will unify and stabilize the nation and provide the kind of spiritual leadership that is going to take them uh, forward even into the reign of his son Solomon. So we come to this section, we've looked at it before, that David reigns for the first uh, seven and a half years in Hebron, and then he will reign 33 years for a total of of um, 40 years and six months over the united kingdom of Israel and Judah. Last time we looked at how he conquered uh, Jerusalem. It was important as David was unifying the nation to have a capital, to have a capital city where he would have his dwelling and that would have a focus, but it wasn't going to be a capital like other capitals. You may choose a capital city because it's on a port, it's on a river, it has a strategic location, there's good communication. Remember at that time, you didn't have highways, you didn't have, you had trade routes, but you didn't have highways or cars or fast motor travel up until the early 1800s. Nothing in the world moved faster than a horse. Think about that. Nothing in the world moved faster than a horse until you got steam. And then it moved a little faster. You had some ships uh, because of wind. They might go a little faster. But on land, nothing moved faster than the speed of a horse. So... Travel, roads, rivers were critical for transportation of goods, but Jerusalem doesn't have that kind of strategic location. It's not on a critical trade route. It's not on a river. It's located, though, centrally in terms of being between the northern kingdoms, I mean the northern tribes in Samaria and the southern tribes, Judah, actually is in the south, Benjamin, just a little bit on the northern edge of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is technically in Benjamin territory. South is Judah as well as Simeon. They just sort of merged together as uh, as history went by. So we're going to see this shift that takes place with a focus on Jerusalem. And we talked about that last time. We talked about the significance of Jerusalem and God's plan. I went through a lot of different verses that emphasize the importance of Jerusalem to God, that Uh, David is choosing Jerusalem because this has a religious significance to the Jewish people. I traced that last time going back to Abraham and the two big events of Abraham coming coming back from defeating the four kings uh, from the east and making a tithe or giving 10% of the plunder. He wasn't giving his money. He was giving the plunder that was really owned by the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plains. It's always good to tithe other people's money. You feel much better about things. It's a lot easier to do sometimes. And so that's what David is doing. You know, people just are always getting off on tithing from that example that makes it legitimate, but he's not giving, he, that plunder was not his to keep. So that's the first episode. We'll look again at the second episode, which is that of, of David, be, I mean, of uh, Abraham being told by God to take his son, his only son, to take him to the mountains of Moriah, which is Jerusalem, to sacrifice him there. Uh, to God as a test of whether uh, Abraham has gotten to the point of really trusting God's plan. So 
Uh, now we see that David is going to choose, um, to choose Jerusalem as uh, a, as a, the capital because of its significance for God. And we know from passages in Scripture that we've gone over, we'll go over them again, that God has chosen Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. He's chosen Jerusalem to be his own. So what, what we learn from this is that God has specific plans at times, specific geographical plans at times, not always, but at this time he he does. So Jerusalem is there because God had a plan for that, going back to Abraham, and there's something significant about that location. When Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, God said to him, Lech Lecha, that's the Hebrew phrase, it means get out. It means to go. It is a compound uh, of a verb for, for intensification with an infinitive absolute plus the main verb, em- emphasizing that you need to do it now. And so God says to Abraham, get out now and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And so he traveled up to Haran first. He didn't get rid of all of his family, took his nephew with him and and uh, his father with him. When his father died, then he left. And he finally went south to the land that God was going to show him. God uses that same language when he tells him to leave Beersheba all the way down in the south and he says, again, lech lecha. So the text is drawing a specific parallel there. It's time to get out, go now, and take your son, your only son, and take him to uh, Moriah where uh, you will sacrifice him uh, to me. So that lays the historical religious background. This is a significant uh, place uh, spiritually. So we, we learn in... Um, uh, verse 6, that the king and his men, that's David and his men, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The old name, the Canaanite name, was Jebus. For the Jebusites, those were the people that lived in the Canaanite clan or tribe that lived in Jerusalem. Uh, they're called the inhabitants of the land. Now, that phrase is significant because... The Canaanites were called again and again and again the inhabitants of the land. So if you're reading through your Bible and you see inhabitants of the land here, you immediately are identifying them with the Canaanite uh, people, the tribes, and the culture that was under the ban from God that were supposed to be completely annihilated. And so David understands that, and he sees what he is doing as part of that war to destroy the Canaanites in the land that God uh, promised them. And so he's fulfilling that. So all of that is brought to mind uh, through, through the language. In the parallel passage in First Chronicles 11.4, David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. So they've been down in Hebron, which is in the south. We'll look at it. It's not as far south as Beersheba was for Abraham, but he's down in the south. He's about 20, 25 miles south of Jerusalem, and he heads north. In fact, for those of you going on this next trip to Israel, we'll be going to Hebron uh, to see the uh, cave of the patriarchs at Machpelah. But so the, the inhabitants of Jebus taunt David, you can't come up here, uh, but David took the city, as these verses indicate. And he gives a challenge to his men. And because they're they're competitive, they're young, they're they're uh, full of uh, uh, competitiveness. And who's going to be the first one to go up and attack the Jebusites? Now that language is important because you see, if you're Jebus is sort of on a finger ridge that extends south. This is the uh, picture of artist conception. Later, when the temple's built under Solomon, this is Mount Moriah up here on the top side. It all goes downhill from there. There was a gully here that was called the Ophel, O-P-H-E-L, and that had to be filled in. And then there's this finger ridge that points due south, and it was extremely uneven, and you either walk downhill or you walk uphill, and it was rugged. Uh, So that's going to have to all be uh, fixed out. Here's uh, a 
Uh, the map on the right shows it again. You have the Mount Moriah and this finger coming south. You see how steep the sides are. So it was built there for defense. It's hard to attack it because whatever you do, you're going to have to go up. And, of course, in military strategy, uh, the key defensive ground is always the high ground, makes it more easy to defend. I pointed out last time that Jerusalem is used 669 times in the Old Testament. Now, how many of you noted, if any, Sharon put a slide up, and he said that Jerusalem was used, I think, 900 and something times. How many of you all caught that? We didn't have the same numbers. Now, I've used the numbers he used in the past. And the reason it, there's a difference is because Jerusalem, you, you don't search on the word Jerusalem in the English Bible. You search on the word Jerusalem in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek text because there are many places apparently in the Greek text where um, Jerusalem is supplied in the English text, but it's not in the Greek text. Almost a hundred uses. So you want to go with how many times it's used in the original. It's seven, uh, 669 times in the Old Testament and 731 times for the entire Bible. Now, when you add in the alternate names for Jerusalem, Salem and Zion, it's used over 980 times. And as Sharon pointed out last, last week at the conference, it's not mentioned once in the Quran. So where did the Muslims get all this uh, energy over Jerusalem. And, well, it comes from the Hadith and the legend that Muhammad was riding his horse to the farthest mosque at the farthest extent. Okay, doesn't name the mosque, doesn't say where it was, it just says the farthest extent, and then his horse leaps up into heaven. And so they decide, somebody decided along the way when they captured Jerusalem that they would build a mosque there, and they would call it the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the means the farthest extent. So that's where that terminology came from. But it's sort of like building the mosque after the fact and has no historical uh, basis. So Jerusalem is originally not significant at all to Islam, but it became so later, and I believe that's part of the angelic conflict, is Satan is seeking to... Uh, counterfeit and attack and replace Christianity and destroy both Jews and Christians. Now, we learn about God choosing this place because in Psalm seventy-eight, sixty-eight, we read, but God chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He chose Judah in Gen Genesis 49. We have Isaac's prophecy of Judah, that Judah will, uh, that the scepter will not depart from between his legs. It will be the tribe from which the kings will come. And so God chose the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem is on the northern border of Judah, and this is where uh, the king will reign. In Psalm 132.13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. So God chose us from, from eternity past. This city is significant. This location is significant, and God is building around that. This isn't just some some happenstance place, some place that just uh, shows up and some place that is just, oh, uh, a, a convenient or circumstantial location. And then in Psalm 76, 2, in Salem, that is Jerusalem, also his tabernacle, literally the word there is his den or lair. And we think of the Messiah as the lion of Judah. What, where does a lion reside? In his den or in his lair? So there's all kinds of interesting stuff that's going on there in the original languages. Well, <clears throat> as we look at this and, and study it, we realize that that the most significant thing that happened in this location is that which was described by uh, Moses in Genesis chapter 22, that there is a significance to this location that is spiritual, not physical, it's not military, but it's this religious heritage. Uh, Genesis 22.2, God said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, Yitzhak, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. That's that word, go, lech lecha. Uh, it's a command. You will certainly go. Same 
verbiage that you have in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. You will certainly go and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I pointed out that there's three ridge lines that go through, uh, run from north to south going through Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives, then the Kidron Valley, then Mount Moriah. And you see this finger ridge going down here. That's the old city of David. Up in this area was the, is the Temple Mount. Then you had a, a valley here that is no longer there. Uh, it was called the uh, uh, the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And then you have Mount Zion. And the name Mount Zion sometimes is just applied to the, to the whole area because this is the city of, of Jerusalem. And while he's there, Abraham says, after God has provided a substitute, you remember the story, He's about to sacrifice Isaac. He has his knife raised. The angel stops him, and there is a ram that's got his horns stuck in the brush. And so God has provided a substitute, perfect image for teaching substitutionary atonement. And God has provided. Now, there's interesting here is that when the text says, uh, Yahweh Yireh, which is translated in many translations as the Lord will provide. The word there for provide comes from the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means to see, to look at something, and to pay attention to something. And what what Abraham is saying here isn't the Lord will provide. The Lord sees. The Lord is paying attention. And the result of his paying attention is that he provides and provides a substitute for Isaac. But it is that idea that God sees he's actively involved in our lives and in history, and he provides. And and then uh, Abraham says in verse 14, as it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, it shall be seen. What does he mean by that? He says, for this reason, God will be called the God who sees, or Yahweh Yireh, and now he says, it, the Lord will, will see. What is being seen? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what will be seen. But this is significant. Abraham is a prophet, the New Testament says, and the only place that we can see in the Scriptures where there's a con possible connection here is in John chapter 8. So I want you to turn with me to your New Testament, to the Gospel of John, and this is a significant chapter, so I, I don't want to just blow past this. I want to stop a minute and camp out on John 8. In John 8, Jesus is having, go figure, he's having a um, confrontation with the Pharisees. He is talking to them, and they're... Um, they are, uh, of course, critical of him, hostile to him. But then in verse 31, he talks to a group there, as he's been talking to this whole group. He speaks not to the Pharisees, but it says he's speaking to those Jews who believed him. And so he begins to talk to them. This is the context where he says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. He doesn't say you're saved indeed. He said, you're my disciples indeed. You're saved if you believe in him, but you are a disciple if you continue in his word and you continue to be a student of his word through your life. And they answer him and they say, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone because he just said, if you don't know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now here, we have probably among this group, we have the Pharisees, and they're still aggravating. They say, no, 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 we're, we don't need something to be free. We, we are already free. And so Jesus goes on and talks to them, and then that brings Abraham into the uh, conversation because the, the, the non-saved Jews, the Pharisees, believe that just because they were Abraham's descendants and uh, therefore part of the Abrahamic covenant, that they were automatically uh, saved. And so if we skip down to verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place 
in you. So there's two groups here. There's a, a group that are saved and believe him and those who don't. And Jesus has this confrontation uh, with those who uh, have not believed in him. And so uh, this is all centering around his view of, of uh, Abraham. Verse 38, he says, I speak what I have seen with my eyes, with my, what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Well, this is going to be real complimentary. And they answered and said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, you were Abraham's children. You do the works of Abraham. So you're, you're not believing in me as Abraham believed. He goes on to say, now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham did not seek. So this is, this is strange because Jesus is talking as if there is something that Abraham saw and observed that we're not told about in Genesis in relationship to God. And so then he confronts them in, with one of the best lines in history for how to win friends and influence people. He said, you do the deeds of your father, and later he's going to say, you're of your father the devil. When we get down into verse uh, 44, you're of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. So he's already foreshadowing his death there that they want to they want to kill him. And so then we can just uh, skip down a little bit to verse 56 and there he says your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That means as a seer, S-E-E-R, a seer, a, that's another word for a prophet, Abraham, God allowed Abraham to see the future and what that plan, what his plan was. D Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, part of that was that he, God apparently allowed him to see this and understand the significance of that ram in the thicket that ram that was caught that would be the substitute for Isaac. And he was teaching this idea of substitutionary atonement and that eventually the Messiah would come. And the Jews, of course, completely misunderstood and had no idea uh, what, what Jesus was talking about, for they said, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that is a loaded statement because the word, the Greek words that are translated I am are ego, me, and that communicates the root meaning of Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, which means to be. And so when God says to Moses, Moses said, who, when, when God commissioned Moses to go to the Israelites to free them, Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. He gives meaning to that name as the self-existent one. The, to be means to exist. And this idea of God saying, I am, is that I exist. I am the self-existent one. I exist independently of everything else. I am autonomous. And so when, God, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they immediately understood that he was claiming to be God. And we know that because the rea their reaction in verse 59 is they took up stones to throw at him. They're not like modern liberals who say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. That was, that was just these disciples th who wrote 300 years later. Well, that's been disproven so many times, but they still continue with that lie. The reality is, is that John shows us that they understood what Jesus was claiming by showing their reaction. They were going to pick up stones and throw them at him, but Jesus hid himself. I think he just cloaked himself or he suddenly became invisible and he walked out of their midst and they were wondering where where he went. Now we have another 
thing that is that is pretty interesting about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. Genesis doesn't tell us how much Abraham knew. We get these little sort of brief flashes in John 8 and in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so that tells us it's a test, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, who is Isaac, of whom it was said, Isaac and your seed shall be called. See, that connects the test to the promise of the seed. And then how does he, why does he do this? Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up. In other words, Abraham had thought this through and he realized that if that all these times that he had tried to make the seed happen on his own in the whole affair with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael and none of that was God doing it, he finally realized God was going to do it the natural way with Sarah and she gave birth to, to uh, 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 gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac. Earlier, I got I said Isaac instead of Jacob, giving the prophecy to Judah. So he he gives birth to Isaac. But when Isaac becomes a, a, an adult, Abraham says, "Isaac is going to die. You're going to kill him." And the test is: Are you going to believe me when I said in Isaac your name your 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 seed will be named? And Abraham now trusts God, and he knows, he's thought it through, and he realizes God can raise him from the dead because God's going to be true to his promise. And he trusts him. That's the sufficiency of God's grace and God's power in our lives. We need to trust God. He can do what he says he will do. So he concludes God will ra- can raise Isaac from the dead, and from which he will also receive him in a figurative sense. Okay, so all of this is in the background, and this is why uh, Jerusalem is important. Of course, as we learned last week in our seminar with uh, Sharam Hadian, that the Muslims have twisted and perverted that story, and they claim that it was really Ishmael that Abraham was going to uh, sacrifice, not Isaac, and that it didn't happen in Jerusalem, See, for them, Jerusalem isn't important. So what's going on today? They were, Abraham was sacrificing Ishmael at the Kaaba in Mecca. Because, of course, you know, Abraham was a Muslim. Of course, Muhammad didn't live, and you didn't have Islam until 622. But why let history get in the way of a good lie? So D- David then is picking Jerusalem to be the capital because of its significance. And we're told in verse 8, now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft, we went through all of that last week with uh, uh, Warren Shaft and with the uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was much, much later, and the old Canaanite Tunnel, that it was through the Canaanite Tunnel that Joab and his men went. He led them up that way and then up through these other uh, tunnels and channels that came down from within the walls of the city. So they popped up inside the city and basically took it without any bloodshed. So he defeated the Jebusites despite the fact that they were uh, ridiculing and slandering David and saying, oh, we just have a bunch of lame and blind people here. And uh, there's, the, the text says they were hated by David's soul. They're hated because they're the Canaanites. They're, he's looking at the war through divine viewpoint glasses. He's not hating them because he's just a wicked man. He's not hating them because they've done something horrible to them. He's hating them because they are the enemies of God and they are to be completely annihilated according to uh, the warfare that God instituted in, uh, in taking the land and destroying the Canaanites. And so then there's a statement at the end, therefore they say the blind and lame shall not come into the house. Well, what house is this? Well, the therefore they say is a introduces sort of a proverbial statement that does not come into use until much later, even though this event is some uh, 
probably 40 or 50 years before uh, before Solomon builds the temple. Remember, according to the law, the lame and the crippled are not allowed into the the temple. You know, they are unclean. So they're not allowed into the uh, inner part. They can come into the outer courtyard, but not the uh, inner courtyard. So they are representative of being spiritually unclean. We saw that this word last time, the water shaft or the water tube, and that explains how they came up. I showed you several pictures, and here's a, I'm going back to this one because we're going to see that there's this uh, the, the spring here, this fortification protects the spring, this water source, and the tunnel would bring the water into the city. Uh, it's the old Canaanite tunnel at this particular time. And then up through the city, there would be these these channels or uh, fissures where the people could go down and get water so that it was something like, like uh, this is a picture of Hezekiah's tunnel. The old uh, Canaanite tunnel ran a little further down this way. If you go there, you get a choice. You can either walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and you'll get wet because there's water there. That becomes the later route for the water from the uh, Gihon Spring down to the pool of Siloam. And, or you can take the what they call the dry route, and the dry route is just the old Canaanite tunnel. So if you look at this, it looks like there's a river of water flowing through the city, even though the river of water that I'm talking about at this time was the Canaanite tunnel. And this is the kind of image that you have it's picked up on in Psalm 46.4. David is saying, There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. The city of God here is not heaven, it's Jerusalem. And water flowing through the city makes people's hearts glad. You need water to live and to have life, and it shows God's blessing. And this is all present there. There's a lot of people saying, Well, where's there a river in Jerusalem? Well, it's this this. Uh, Canaanite tunnel that brings the water from the Gihon Springs to bring water to the um, to those living in Jerusalem. Uh, never, so in verse 7 we read, nevertheless David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now the word stronghold is the Hebrew word Matsuda, which is anglicized to Masada. It means fortress or stronghold. It's just a general term, for, and it's used many times to refer to God as our fortress or our stronghold. And so we know David uh, issues a challenge. Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain, and Joab's the one who leads the charge and conquers it. And so David... Um, we're told, calls it the city of David and built all around it the Milo and inward. So he's stable. The, the city had fallen apart under the Jebusites. And so he is going to go through an urban renovation project and he is going to build up the terraces. You have the offal that's up here that was a gully between the Temple Mount and the city of David. And so that's filled in. And the Milo are these terraces that are built up in this very uneven uh, landscape so that the houses can be built on top of that. Now, when we get to the palace in a few minutes, you're going to see how they did this in the foundation for the palace of David. So he builds the city from the Milo to the surrounding Arab, and the city is repaired. So this is it, this little finger coming downhill right here, is the old city of David. And you see that even today they have various things that are done in order to support that area and to level it out. And then we're told in verse 10, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's the theme of this section, is that God is with David and God is raising up uh, raising up David. And the phrase there is important. It's Yahweh translated, you see the, in English, it's the uppercase L-O-R-D, Yahweh Elohim, 
the uh, general name for God, generic name for God. He is Yahweh, the God of the armies. The word there is Sebaoth. We that word is used in a mighty fortress is our God, and it refers to the hosts, which is an antiquated English word for armies. And so this tells us that God is the Lord of the armies. Usually this is applied to the angels, that we see an intersection of angelic hosts or armies in support of what David is doing in the spiritual realm. And we're reminded that it is God that is doing this. This is an illustration of Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This doesn't mean you shouldn't have a watchman or you shouldn't have a security system in your home. But if you... Even if you do have a security system in your home and you lock your cars and all of that, all of that is in vain unless the Lord's protecting it, okay? The Lord's the one who builds the house and secures our house, and we trust in the Lord and lock the doors. And we keep a 45 or 9 mil or whatever on the, in the lockbox next to the bed. Now, this is David's expansion within the land, but his reputation expands, and that's what we see starting in 511, how God continues to make David great and make him and expand his rule over the land. And we're introduced to Hiram, who's the ruler of Tyre. Tyre is up in Lebanon. It's the seat of the Baal worship. But there's a recognition here, doesn't come right out and say it, but for Hiram to come down and send messengers and to enter into trade with David tells us that by this time, David has become notable, that the the pagan kings are looking at him. He is no longer some minor tribal chieftain, but he is the king. He's expanded the empire. He's defeated the Philistines. He is making Israel great. So Hiram sends tree, he sends messengers to David. Now, what was the purpose of that? To negotiate trade treaties. He's got to rebuild the city of Jebus. So he needs building materials, he needs laborers, he needs uh, carpenters and stonemasons and craftsmen. And so Hiram is going to send these to David, uh, the building materials, the cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And now they're going to build David a house. They're going to build his palace. Now, 10 years ago, we didn't know where that was. They had some ideas, but they didn't know. But now they do. So we read in verse 12, so David knew that the Lord had established, we'll get to that verse in a minute. This is an aerial looking down on this area, if you were to see the area, which we will in the next slide, off here to the upper right, that's where the palace was. But you had to shore up the foundations and build those terraces, and that's what we're looking at here. This is all the stonework that was done to support the foundation of David's palace. Now, we're going to see it again in this next slide. So take a good look at those those steps there, all those rocks and everything. And now this is where they are. This is what you were looking at right here. This is this stepped stone structure, they call it. And this would have supported uh, the base for the uh, palace of David. So there's a lot of excavation. Now you can walk down some steps. This is the visitor center up here. And you walk down and you come out down in this area here and you get a little lecture from the guide talking about all the different things that they found there. All of this happened about eight or nine years ago, these excavations. So like I said, the first year I went in 2006, you didn't see any of this. So this has all taken place within the last uh, 10 or 12 years, and it's just uh, just incredible to see how they have uncovered uh, so much of this. And this is an artist's depiction of what David's palace looked like. Here's that stepstone structure, and then here's the palace that is built on top of that. And then this is 
the city as it goes down the slope. Now, if I can remember to go retrieve this picture again, this will be important because when we get to chapter 12 and David is out on his rooftop looking down and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath on the rooftop. Even today, they collect water on the rooftops, but she's fairly well exposed at that, but we see why David is able to see her because he's he's got the high ground and can see what's going on. So along with this expansion, David is failing part of the uh, prosperity test, and he's disobedient to Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, Neither shall he, he that is the king, so this is in the law of Moses, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And so in verse 13, we read, David took more concubines and wives. Now, a concubine is not a mistress. A concubine had legal status, and but not the same status as a wife. We have nothing to compare this to in, in our culture. But a concubine could be a substitute. I mean, we, we may get close to it with some of these things where we're going through where you have... Um, where you have a, a, a I forget the term, uh, sort of a substitute mother. What? Surrogate. surrogate. That's very good. Thank you. Uh, surrogate, uh, surrogate mother to ha- give birth to a child that will then be reared. This is the status of Hagar. She was a, a surrogate because Sarah was um, not fertile. So, David takes concubines and wives from Jerusalem in disobedience to the law. After he'd come, he's beginning to act like the pagan kings who are establishing harems. The word harem means something that is prohibited or off limits. That's why God said that the the, the what is uh, wrongly called holy war is really the ban, which is this word, same word group, haram, which means something that is off limits. And so that's what a harem is. It's off limits to everybody else. So he takes his wives, and now he has a bunch of children. And they're listed in verses 14 to 16. Shemua, Shobab, Natan, Shlomo. I'm giving you the Hebrew versions. Evar, Elishua, Nepheg, Yafia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Those are his sons, and most of those we don't read about ever again, but of course we read about uh, Solomon, and uh, that's about the only one from this list. Solomon is born there after he becomes king of Jerusalem. And then we see there's still problems with foreign enemies. The Philistines heard that they had anointed David king. But before I go to that, I wanted to comment on what's going on here with this polygamy. Because people get some odd ideas here that somehow God approved of polygamy because God didn't lower the boom on David or on the others that had polygamy, had multiple wives. What we see at the beginning here is David has two areas of weakness that are exposed here. One is an area of weakness in terms of women. The other is an area of weakness in terms of power because he wants to be thought of like the other kings of the other kingdoms and empires. They show how grand and glorious they are by the number of women in their in their harem. And uh, so God has prohibited this. That's why he did this. He wanted to demonstrate that the the ruler of Israel was going to be quite different. But he doesn't lower the boom. He allows, uh, allows polygamy. It is from his uh, permissive will. But what we see here is that, that God deals with people in different ways in terms of their own spiritual life. The same is true for us. So this is all part of the doctrine of spiritual growth and sanctification. God has absolutes. 
Those absolutes never change. It was always God's plan for a marriage to be between one man and one woman. And in that marriage, there was a a framework for the family, the education system that God designed to carry carry culture forward. Polygamy destroys that. But God is allowing it because sometimes in life we have to learn more significant basic lessons before God can teach us some of the advanced lessons. In the spiritual life, we go through various training processes, and um, God doesn't always hammer us about every sin in our life at, this, at the instant we get saved. If, if he did, we'd, we'd all have collapsed a long time ago. God takes each person through the training process. It's individually targeted to you and to me. You can look at somebody else, and they, they, they commit some sin and seem to get away with it. And if you committed that sin, you know that, that your life would be over with, and everything would fall apart. Uh, God is, deals with each one of us on an individual on an individual basis, and that's what happens with, uh, uh, with believers in the Old Testament. God is very specific about Abraham and the fact that, that his son would come from Abraham and Sarah. He wasn't going to get that son some other alternate route. He was going to have to do it through, his, through that one route. Um, God made an issue later on with Moses. One time Moses was to strike the rock. Another time he was to speak to the rock. But instead he struck the rock, and God says, because you struck the rock, you're not going to go into the land. So God deals with these different sins in different ways because of broader context. And so that's what we see here. This is about the grace of God. God is going to bring us along to spiritual maturity on a case-by-case basis. That doesn't mean that some sin's okay for you because you think you're getting away with it because all sin wars against the soul. And so it always has a negative impact on your, on your soul. What God is trying to teach David and what he's trying to teach Israel at this time is the faith rest drill, that they must trust God. That's the priority. And that God is going to uh, provide for them. He's going to give them the victory, and he is going to be true to his promise, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Moses, and soon the promise that he will make to, to David. So he allows the kings of Judah at this early time, remember they don't have the Holy Spirit, they're not identified with Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The sin nature still has tyranny. So God holds off on providing judgment in those areas until there is more maturity available to, um, uh, to Israel. Polygamy was never right. There's not a single case of polygamy in the Old Testament that's positive. It's always pictured as bringing about many different uh, problems. All right. Now we go into this next section where we see David's victory over the Philistines. Now, this is rather interesting. There's two episodes here, and they both involve the Valley of Rephaim. Now, you remember who the Rephaim were? These were the giants. Now, we don't know why, specifically why this valley was associated with them. Maybe this is where some of them had lived at one particular time. So the Philistines, who are still David's sworn enemies, now learn that David has been anointed king over both Judah and Israel. Remember, they've had control over Israel in the north, and so now they want to take out David. So they send a body of troops to take out David in verse 17. And when David heard of it, it says he went down to the stronghold. So this is an area that was easily fortified and provided a defensive system. I'll show you a picture in just a minute. The Philistines then come up and they deploy themselves in the valley of Rephaim. 
And this looks like this. Here's the overall picture of Israel. This is Philistia. You can see the problem here is it's in the low land. It's along the coast, what's called today the Shephela. Up here you have in the middle of the country, right here, you can see the high ground. Jerusalem is here in the high ground. Now I'm going to blow this up in the next slide because what you see here is Jerusalem. And right here it says the Valley of Rephaim. So that valley, and then there's an arrow pointing just south of Jerusalem. So this looks like the Valley of Rephaim is an extension of the Kidron Valley that would go south from Jerusalem between, with Bethlehem, if you're headed from Jerusalem, Bethlehem would be on your right, and uh, the Mount of Evil Council would be on your right. And this is the way they're going to, there's one of a couple of different ways that an enemy army could come in to attack Jerusalem. And so David takes up a fortified position along the hills here and sets up an ambush, and the Philistines are coming up from the south between these hills. And so David is going to set up a classic ambush and take them out. But notice his methodology and contrast it with Saul. Verse 19, so David inquired of the Lord. First thing David does is he goes to the Lord, and we've seen this from chapter 1, David inquiring of the Lord, what should I do? How should I do it? Is this the right thing to do? And he says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord says to him, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now, God doesn't speak to any of us this way today. He only speaks through his word, but at that time, to specific individuals who were prophets. Now, David didn't have the office of prophet, but he had the gift of prophecy. God spoke to him and gave him direct divine guidance. You don't get that today. That doesn't happen. Now, there are a lot of Christians who think so, but they're they're kind of nuts. They're just in love with their own thoughts and their own emotions. It's just mysticism, which is always the enemy of biblical Christianity. So the Lord tells David specifically, go up for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So in verse 20, so David went to this location, Baal Perizim, Baal Perizim, which means the Lord or the head of that which came rushing on, something uh, something like that in, in terms of the terminology, like the breakthrough of the water or a bursting flood. Uh, this is the name that is assigned to this place. And if you look at that terrain, you can see that at one time, this would be an area that would be, um, that would be prime for a flash flood, that, that kind of a thing. The, David goes to Baal Perizim and defeated them there. Now, we don't know how they defeated them. And we're, but we're told from David's statement, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. It's possible that there was some sort of thunderstorm that just uh, the, in that desert dry area would have just washed them away. And it's very likely several years ago, I think this may have been almost 10 years ago now, we were um, at... Um, at Qumran. And when you're there at Qumran and, and you're looking up high in the, the, the mountains, very dry, the mountains in the hills there towards Jerusalem, there's these, these gullies, these canyons literally that come down. And there'd been a half an inch of rain up near Jerusalem the year, uh, just a month before. By the time it got 15 miles down to where this gully was pouring out by Qumran, it was a massive flash flood. There were a group of hikers that were going up that gully. People at Qumran were yelling to them, you know, come back, come back. There's a flash flood. Nobody could hear them, and they were all killed. So this is something that is, is common even today in this particular area. And as they are wiped out, they leave their idols. That's what the word images there means in 521. And so David and his men carried them away. This is the reverse of what happened 
uh, earlier back in Second Samuel chapter four, when, when I mean First Samuel chapter four, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured. So David is reversing it. Then the Philistines go back and they reorganize and they try to do this again. They come up through the valley of Rephaim. David does what? He inquires of the Lord who says, don't go up this time. Don't you do the same thing, but come around behind them, hit them from the rear and come in from the front of these uh, mulberry trees. And actually, that's probably not the best uh, translation, probably refers to balsam trees. And come in from the front of these balsam trees, they'll give you cover, but there's also going to be wind that will make the, will blow the leaves and create sound, and that will also give you, give you cover for the sound that you're going to make. And when you hear this sound, like marching, in the leaves when the wind's blowing, then move quickly and attack them from the rear. And the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. God's going to be with you, and you'll destroy them. David did so, verse 25, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Now, the key phrase there is, as the Lord commanded him. This is a direct contrast to Saul. Saul did not do as God commanded. Saul did did not uh, inquire of the Lord every time he went into battle. He made his own plans, but we see that contrast. David is totally dependent upon the Lord and trusts the Lord, and God gives him the victory. And so in this map, what we see is here's Baal Perazim, this this area to the southwest of Jerusalem, and then he's going to push them all the way back, both on the southwest and then up here. Apparently, this on this second one, they fled to the north because he talks about Geba, which is up on the north side of Jerusalem, and pushes them back to Gezer. So they're being pushed back down to the Shephelah. To back out of the hill country. And so this is where David, David has his victory over the uh, enemies of, of Israel and the enemies of God. That's the key phrase. So the application for us, again, is that God is the one who builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain in our attempts to build it. God either gives the increase or it's not of God with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Word. Thank you for uh, what you've provided in terms of illustrations of your power, your control, your guidance, your sovereignty, and above all, the importance of trusting you and obeying you and doing exactly as you instruct us. For therein lies the path to victory. Just because we do it the correct way doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to bring about Uh, all of the fantastic results that we think, but it is only in that environment where we are obeying you that you will use it to, to advance your glory. And Father, we pray that we might learn the lesson of walking with you in obedience as David did. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.